Healthcare Uncultured, the Shadi Nabhan podcast. I appreciate you tuning in. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And today's podcast is about relapse refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. It is being taped a week after the American Society of Hematology meeting. At the American Society of Hematology meeting, there were three studies. One is the Belinda trial. The second is the Zuma trial. And the third was the TRANSFORM trial. All trials were asking the same question. What should we do for patients with relapse, refractory, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma? In general, the standard of care for patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in the relapse and refractory setting is to undergo salvage chemotherapy and those who respond well, they proceed for high-dose chemotherapy and autologous stem cell transplantation. Because of the activity of CAR-T therapy in the relapse and refractory setting, these three studies were initiated to ask the question whether CAR-T could be superior to autologous stem cell transplantation or maybe similar with lower toxicity. So the Belinda trial asked the question about Kimraya, which is a CAR-T product, and it looked at 300 patients. That trial, actually, the Belinda trial was negative. It found that CAR-T therapy was no better than uh, autologous transplant. The primary refractory lymphoma in the Belinda trial was defined as a disease that has relapsed or progressed within one year after completing first-line treatment or individuals that never achieved an initial complete remission. If you look at the TRANSFORM trial, it enrolled 184 patients with large B-cell lymphoma after the relapse, and half of them received lysocell CAR-T therapy. The other half received standard chemo followed by autologous transplant. And um, at the 12 months from therapy, 44% with lysocell treated patients survived without lymphoma recurrence compared to 24% of individuals with autologous cell transplant. The overall survival was 79% at 12 months for lysocell and 64% with autologous transplant. The Zuma 7 trial used Yescarta and had 360 patients that were enrolled. And uh, again, uh, 41% of the Yescarta patients survived without recurrence compared to only 16% with autologous transplant. And uh, uh, Yescarta, again, uh, was superior to autologous transplant. So basically, I brought on Dr. Matt Mauter, who is at the Mayo Clinic, and he's introduced himself. He does not treat patients, but he is heavily involved in, in statistics and, and interpreting endpoints and so on, because I really wanted to ask him about whether some of these differences were related to how we define endpoints. And then Dr. Al Skarbnik, who have been previously on this show several times to discuss the clinical applicability of that. In all disclosure, we had also planned to have Dr. Mehdi Hamadani from the Medical College of Wisconsin, who has also been on the show previously, but he uh, was under the weather and was unable to make the show. So I'm hoping that this show is going to help us understand why these three trials that asked the same exact question in relapse refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma ended up with divergent results. And what are the clinical implications on that? What does that mean for patients that are in this setting? And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate the show, refer a friend or a colleague, check out my website, www.chadinabhan.com. Check out the YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And without further ado, Dr. Al Skarbnik and Dr. Matt Maurer on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Well, it's really a pleasure to have on this uh, podcast on Healthcare Unfiltered, uh, Dr. Matt Maurer from the Mayo Clinic, and hopefully we'll be joined uh, soon by Dr. Mehdi Hamadani from the Medical College of Wisconsin. Uh, really, the purpose of this podcast is to talk about the CAR-T studies that were presented at the 2021 American Society of Hematology meeting. 
And just try to understand why we had differences in the outcomes of these trials and maybe discuss a little bit of practical implications to that. So Matt, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. Um, uh, appreciate you coming in. We still have a podcast episode, me and you, the tape before that is coming also uh, soon, although it's been a, a while since we've taped that. But uh, let's start by a quick intro to folks who are listening, a little bit about you, what you do, and um, in terms of the scope of your work. Sure, thanks, Chatty. Um, I was wondering about that podcast. I thought that one might have been, you know, coming. Okay, we should probably re-record it. It's been a couple of years, um, and things have things have changed. That was pre-COVID, I believe. Was, uh, yeah, I'll tell you exactly when it was taped. Uh, yeah, but yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, you and uh, what you do, and just a little bit about you. In fact, I'm going to tell you the previous podcast we taped it on September 23rd, 2019, Matt. Yeah. Um, that's yeah, ancient history COVID, these days. Then, yeah. Then COVID hit. All right. Yeah, let's talk about yeah. that. All right. So, yeah. So I'm a statistician um, by training. I have a doctorate in medical science, medical research. Um, and I have been at Mayo for almost 20 years now. And at least 15 years really focusing primarily on lymphoma research. Um, was part of our ovarian cancer spore program as well. But in the, in the past year, I've really transitioned to focusing completely on, on heme and lymphoma, lymphoma primarily. So um, we've got a big lymphoma research program at Mayo. So we've had a, a, a SPORE grant with the University of Iowa. Um, so I've been really involved in that since almost since the inception of that. Um, and uh, the big part of that is our molecular epidemiology resource, which um, Jim Surhan at Mayo and Brian Link at University of Iowa are the PIs of. And so since 2002, we've been enrolling newly diagnosed patients in an observational cohort. So really doing uh, observational real world data before it was cool. Um, and uh, so we've got in 2015, we expanded our cohort to um, six additional cancer centers as part of the LEO cohort um, uh, through a, a U01 grant from the, the NCI, which just got renewed. So. Um, so all told, we've enrolled almost 15,000 patients with lymphoma um, and then at diagnosis and or within six months of diagnosis and prospectively followed them. So it's been a, a wonderful source of research um, for all aspects of, of you know, uh, translational um, biospecimens, you know, we collect biospecimens. So um, can do translational research. Um, we do, we follow up for survivorship and then clinical um, so some, it's been a, a real treasure and an opportunity to really, you know, dig into clinical outcomes in the lymphoma space. So that's where a lot of my work comes from. Um, I, I do have experience in clinical trials, especially early in my career, but also um, worked on some alliance trials in the, in the last few years, including the um, CLGB 50303 study. So, um, so yeah, I've got a lot of the things that we've built and worked on in the observational setting have come from you know, our early experience in clinical trials and how we think about endpoints, given that a lot of thought. So I'm, you know, it'll be interesting to talk different philosophies on how you design trials and how do you assess whether things work or what, how, what outcomes are, are relevant. So you are literally the right person for the topic that I have in mind. And uh, for the record, by the well, way. Well, I can hopefully talk. Uh, I don't know if I'm the right person, but I can hopefully give some, you know, some insights on things. Oh, you are the right person. Although the last time I saw you, your hair was a little bit shorter. It was, yes. So it was very short when we recorded the last podcast. Yeah, you're going like, you know, for like the like rock and roll type of uh, look. You, you know, if you're going to be masked or on Zoom calls, um, hey, why not, right? Yeah, yeah. Excellent. <laughs> well, is it like more maintenance or less maintenance, Matt, with the long hair? Well, I have to get it cut less. So that's one. I don't know. On, on a net benefit, I don't know. Who knows? But I don't know. It's just kind of something to do uh, to keep keep us occupied while we're, you know, doing a lot of work from home and, and such. So there were three studies that were actually presented at the ASH 2021 meeting, all looking at CAR-T in relapsed refractory diffused large B-cell lymphoma. Now, for context, um, basically, you know, I think for listeners of the show, uh, everybody knows that the management of patients with diffused large B-cell lymphoma in the relapse refractory setting is salvage chemotherapy, followed by autologous stem cell transplantation in those who have chemosensitive disease and demonstrate some responsiveness to salvage chemotherapy. 
And I think CAR-T came in because of the activity in the real-life refractory setting. Is it possible that CAR-T could be superior to the autologous stem cell transplantation? So there were three studies that asked the same question, exactly the same question, but they did not conclude with the same results, the outcome. So the purpose of this podcast is try to eliminate or mitigate some of the confusion for folks in that space and try to understand the nuances between these trials. And maybe we can understand why the results were not identical because I, I would have thought I should have identical results. So let's go over each one in terms of how they were designed in terms of endpoints. And then I want to get into with you into trying to understand why we got actually different results. Yeah, no, this is great. And, and um, hopefully Mehdi can join us because I, I want his insight from a, um, someone who's you know, clinically really invested in this space and treating these, these patients. Um, when I look at them, I see Belinda's design to be quite a bit different than the other two. So um, let's start with Belinda. Or let, well, okay. No, no, whichever you decide. Yeah, yeah, no, no. So, I mean, I, I, when I think about it, I tend to think of when I saw this data as it happened. So I, I tend to think like I saw the transform data first, and then I saw the Zuma 7 data, and then I saw the Belinda data, and then okay. trying to like, okay. So, um, and, and the, the challenge is, you know, we don't have the, the publication on transform. So I'm going back to, you know, my Twitter notes that, that I put out there, you know, and I, and I think from my understanding of this, but, you know, looking forward to discussing this is that the transform and Zuma trials were more comparable in their, um, in their designs and their endpoints. And, and then how patients, I think the big thing with both all these trials is that what defines an event for the primary endpoint and then how those patients are managed um, either crossing over off or on trial. I see a lot of consistency actually between the, the transform and the Zuma trials in terms of the design as well as the outcomes that we see. And so both, all these trials use what they, what's called an EFS or event-free survival endpoint um, as the primary endpoint. And, and remember these endpoints are um, heavily scrutinized and, and uh, in a pivotal trial like this, are, are, there's a lot of input from regulatory um, on what the endpoints would be in terms of, because these would be planned for moving forward into uh, in a regulatory approval. So my take on endpoints is a little bit, I don't know, I, I do a lot of non-trial work as well, um, but there's some of it is standard, some of it is a bit nomenclature. So for example, um, when we think of progression-free survival, I typically would think time until documented disease progression or death from any cause. So you start the clock at randomization in this case, and then you would go until there is a clear, the disease has, uh, on a trial has gotten worse, documented by, um, typically by scan, um, or the patient dies. Now, here we're in a setting where you're really trying to get these patients into a CR and a, and a, and a subsequent remission, right? That is the ultimate goal of this therapy. You're, we're still hopefully in a curable intent setting. And so um, that's where this notion sometimes of this event-free survival can come in. And you'll see that on frontline trials as well where for DLBCL, where, I mean, the goal is really to cure patients here and we are in a curable setting. So if that therapy didn't cure the patient, then that's an event, right? That's a clinically actionable bad thing that happened. So I sometimes when we're describing this, I like time till the first bad thing happens on the trial. And so the event-free survival can have a little bit definition typically is, is it's described as what constitutes the event. So I tend to think of event-free survival as sort of a catch-all, but I tend to like it in a lot of settings. And so when we use, uh, when we do endpoints like this in our observational studies for frontline DLBCL, we would include time until um, from you know starting at diagnosis or initiation of therapy until that frontline therapy fails. And so that could be, it was not, you had to, that treatment wasn't adequate and it wasn't, didn't, you didn't achieve the clinical benefit that you were hoping to see in terms of getting that patient in remission. So if you have residual disease, we'd, you know, that's a clinically actionable, meaningful thing. We'd call that an event, even if it's not a 
strict progression and clinician says, you know, this is, I need to treat this patient more, that therapy that I gave the patient should have been curative, then that, that, that treatment didn't do its job. So when we get into this setting now in the second line, I think this is where the, the definitions get interesting and really separates the trials. So in Zuma, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is my reading of things, but in Transform and Zuma 6, the patient's um, an event was considered if that, so you, you randomize, right, into the, the CAR-T or standard of care, standard of care being we're going to give the patient um, chemotherapy, get them into uh, a response, and, and then transplant them. And so this is where it gets tricky, right, because CAR-T is approved for third line. So if that patient, right, so if the patient try, goes to RICE or our DHAP or our GDP and progresses or gets a sub, you know, sub optimal response to that salvage chemotherapy or rescue chemotherapy, that, that, that chemo didn't really do what you were hoping it to do, right, is get the patient in remission so you can go to transplant. Um, and so on these transform and Zuma 6 trials, from my understanding, that would be Zuma, now considered. Zuma, Zuma 7, just. Before. Zuma 7, sorry, I'm going to, I'm probably going to screw up the Zumas just no, because okay, of all that. Okay, okay. <laughs> but, um, but, but then those patients then would, would be now considered an event because they are now, that, that first, that first, that second line therapy didn't work to the, to the, what we were hoping. And so now the question is, Clinically, right, do you give more chemo or do you go to CAR-T? Um, and so they wrote the design to say that is that was considered an event where if, if, um, if you didn't see the response that you were wanting on the, on the standard of care. So the Zuma 7 was, so, so first of all, the Zuma 7 did not have bridging chemotherapy, right? Right, and that's where I think there's some discussions here about who are the patients that are going on it and how, could, how did you manage the patients until you could initiate chemo or get to, you know, the ultimate goal of transplant or CAR-T here. Okay, so the Zuma 7 had no bridging chemo. So patients who were relapsed, they were freezed, and then some of them went into salvage chemotherapy, followed by transplant, and the others went right away into CAR-T. There, say that again. I was just looking at, so they... The Zuma, yep. the Zuma 7 had no bridging, like it's traditionally right. for CAR-T, yep. I believe. You, yeah. So the Zuma 7 had patients who received, uh, you know, they were, you know, at the time of relapse, mm -hmm. some of them were randomized to receiving salvage chemotherapy followed by transplant. Correct. And some of them were just went to CAR-T directly without the right. chemotherapy. Yep. Um, and then the primary endpoint was event-free survival as well. And what you're telling me that the event, the, the event defined in Zuma based on progression, death, or what's the other one? Event. Let's see. I'm I'm pulling up the protocol here or the the, the publication. Yeah, for Zuma um, seven. Because I'm trying to think. Mm -hmm. Zuma seven was a positive study. It supported the fact that patients. Uh, you know, who receive CAR-T in the setting uh, are, are actually yep. uh, better than, uh, than those who did not. But I'm trying to understand how the event was defined because it did meet the primary endpoint without survival advantage. Yeah, and we'll get to the survival here because I think in both of these trials, that is really going to be the telling evidence of do you take a patient to CAR-T first or do you attempt transplant? And I think, you know, we have multiple endpoints on trials uh, for this reason is to really assess some, some different questions and to really get at these different um, measures that we have of, of how well things work. And so um, I'm really excited for the overall survival data as it matures, because I think that's going to be a very, tell us a very important question about how to manage patients where, you know, the tr this trials were designed to test does this, you know, does CAR-T work better than, than, um, transplant in this particular, or the standard of care in this particular scenario. But so the, the definition, uh, well, let's back up a little bit. So in Transform, Belinda and Zuma, all of the trials were the same, asking the same question. Was the endpoint the same in all three trials? No, no. And that's where Belinda, I think, is, is a bit of, is quite a bit different in how the endpoint was defined. So in my read on Zuma, is that the primary endpoints of entry survival time from randomization to the earliest date of disease progression 
commencement of new therapy for lymphoma, death from any cause, or best response of stable disease, up to including response on day 150. Okay. Okay. So if we look then at the, and this is where it's really helpful, the, um, it would be figure, I think figure one, where it kind of walks through the flow of patients. And so and if you look at the patients who are randomized, you have um, 178 that went to leukapheresis from the AXI cell group, 168 got at least one dose of salvage chemo from the standard of care group. But of the 168, only 80 had a response to salvage chemo, um, of which 64 ultimately went to transplant. And so my read on the protocol is those patients who have, you know, didn't have a response to salvage chemo and went off study to get other, went, went and received other therapy um, just because of lack of response to, or, um, or you know, things weren't going the way that the, the clinician or the patient wanted to see on the outcome. And they may have went and then got CAR-T, a lot of them did, got CAR-T off trial. Um, those would have been events, right? I see. And, and okay. so that's why you see a lot of early events on it is that um, a lot of it is, is coming from driven by, if you look at the standard of care arm, is those patients, you know, the event curve really starts to plummet at around month two, which would be about when those patients are getting evaluated for response at the end of the, you know, their first two cycles of RICE or, or RDHAP, or I think there were four that were. So was that considered a crossover in the protocol? Like if they actually, or they were taken off study? <clears throat> Well, they would have gone off study, right? Because they would have, well, I have to look and see if well, that was event, how they were yeah. managed, but that would, they would have been considered an event. And then the protocols can depend then on how that patient gets managed after that. So you can write in that patients who have this type of thing happen can get hard to get crossover and get it on protocol, or they can go and get, since it's standard of care, or available off protocol. Um, I think these patients for this study went off and got, went and got this off protocol. Okay. So that is for the Zuma one. And That's for the Zuma. Yep. We, we don't know why they had no bridging chemotherapy, except in the plenary presentation, it was suggested that the reason for not doing bridging chemotherapy is because sometimes chemotherapy could have a response and mm -hmm. might cloud the activity. Uh, are you okay with that? Because other, the Belinda and the Transform did have bridging chemotherapy. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't, that's that's hard to say. Um, I don't, I, th that's not my expertise necessarily in, in management of these patients who have really aggressive disease and, or, you know, cause these are early relapsing or patients with early relapsed DLBCL, which is um, not a good prognostic feature. And so I think broadly the design of trying to assess it, assess these, these CAR-T in, in those patients was the right move. The challenge I think is, you know, um, we've looked at this in the frontline setting, you know, the, the patients who are in need of urgent therapy um, are probably, and, and it's hard, it can be hard, challenging to enroll those patients on trials. Um, so you have to have patients who are able to get to, the um, the randomization and the therapies on trial here. So that's one of my questions about all of these studies is, you know, is this a how representative of patients with early relapsing large B-cell lymphoma um, are these trials? And I think that's where um, I, I need more clinical expertise from, from uh, uh, experts and who manage um, patients in this setting regarding the use of bridging, um, sure. the, the, you know, uh, I, I noticed on the Belinda trial, the, the, t the median time from diag from progression to enrollment on the study was over a month. And, um, you know, that doesn't seem to fit with broad clinical experience or when, when we've looked at our, our observational data that, that really those patients who can, can afford to, to delay therapy, um, and or maybe those are patients who need to have uh, so have bridging therapy to get to CAR T. So so there is might be an impact on on who went on these trials that I think needs to be teased out a little bit more. I guess what I'm trying to to figure out, Matt, and and, and um, mm -hmm. is how much of the differences. I mean, the core question that I have, and I believe listeners have, mm -hmm. is how much of the differences in how the results, how the trials reported. Yeah. Yeah, simply because of how the endpoints were defined, right? Versus true biological differences 
between the compounds, the CAR T okay. compounds, versus the inclusion exclusion criteria and the trial design. Because there are three possibilities. Yep. Either one, the definition of the endpoints uh, is just different. And because of that, uh, you see differences in output. Number two, it is um, you know, simply the differences in uh, biology. Uh, or, uh, you know, the way it was, the trial was conducted. Yeah, and I think that's where the, the, the striking difference in the EFS results on the Belinda trial is largely due to the design and how the endpoint was defined. Um, so as I said, with the transform in Zuma 1 design, Zuma 6, Seth, Seth what am I? <laughs> Zuma 7 design is that, um, you know, when that patient had um, suboptimal or response or, or the, the treatment was suboptimal um, in, in that first uh, attempt of chemo on the standard of care arm, those patients were events. And, and, you know, if they had to proceed to, let's say, if they got two cycles of, of rice and that wasn't a, a subsequent response, um, you know, clinically those patients could go and get, uh, a, you know, another course or, or switch to a third line therapy of say our GDP or, or another or our DHAP or another salvage chemo regimen um, to go really still with that intent of getting a response and, and, and going to transplant. Those, but those lack of response to the first salvage chemo isn't what by my read is an event in both transform and, and, um, in the Zuma trials, whereas in the Belinda trial, that would not have been an event, and those yeah. patients could receive multiple attempts um, on trial without it being an event of getting to um, getting a response to chemotherapy and going to transplant. So mm -hmm. that, to me, is the biggest difference here. Right? Is that um, you know that that the, the the patient the patients who you know had a um, stable disease to two cycles of rice were an event on two, were not an event necessarily on the other. Um, and so I think that's driving the big differences in the EFS rates. Yeah, and we are going to get um, a clinical perspective. I was able to hear back from Dr. Hamadani. He's not really feeling well. Um, he has some URI symptoms and, and, and so on, but uh, I, I'm going to have a, uh, 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 Dr. Skarbnik, who will uh, dial in um, in the next uh, 10 minutes or so to provide us more clinical perspective. But uh, but I, I like that we're starting with understanding these endpoints and these differences, because I just, I do think, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. I'm not really convinced that there's this real biologic differences between these CAR-T products. Yeah, and it's hard for me to speak to, right? Because I don't treat patients and I don't see that experience of, of delivering the different CAR-T products. The mm -hmm. one thing I want to bring up on the designs that I think resonate with me when I've dug through it this week in preparation for this is if you look at the... Now, assessing this is going to be complicated, right? Because patients who um, you know, didn't do well in the standard of care arm could go over and get the CAR-T products off study. Right, uh, and so um, that always those that crossover can always complicate things. But if I look at the standard, so one of the questions that I had about this is, you know, or clinically, I mean, is one of the questions right? If because I think about sometimes if I was a patient or one of my loved ones was and I had really progressing DLBCL, do you attempt to go to transplant or do you go right to CAR T? Right, I think that's a reasonable clinical question that we want to try to answer with some of these data. And I think that's where the overall survival data for both of these will be really important, right? Because it's ultimately kind of, you've randomized patients to that on these trials of, of attempting standard of care versus going right to CAR-T. And so um, that will hopefully, as the overall survival data matures, and right now, um, I thought the all of the authors did a nice job of, of cautioning on the overall survival data because, you know, it's um, based on the study designs. There's, you know, there's parameters of, and, and, and they walk through nicely of like, this is the order that things were tested in. And this is what the, the threshold that needs to be met for this. But we're seeing, um, I don't want, I hate the word trending, but, you know, we're seeing 
some overall survival benefit that didn't meet the statistical significance on either trial, but it's comparable for both those trials, both TRANSFORM and, um, and, and the Zuma trial, that the patients who went to CAR-T first look to be doing a little bit better than the patients who started standard of care, and then a lot of them went to get CAR-T in the third line setting. So as that data matures, I think those, those data will tell us a lot. Um, and, and I'm very interested to get another year or two of follow-up to see, you know, is, is it worth taking a shot at standard of care? Um, because, you know, if you can, if, if, if you, you know, if I can get a CR on rice and go to transplant, then I still have the CAR-T later, right? And I think that we don't have much data on how transplant is going to work after CAR-T. So I'm trying to think, though, and this may be a question also to Alan when he dials in, but I'm a, like, if I were to design a trial, and hey, I mean, this is, this is your area, trial design, wouldn't you think... Oh, I know it's going to be. I'm right. not a trial design expert, but um, I've done you're a few. More, you're more of an expert than about 90% of the population in trial, trial, trial. But I'm trying just to think, like, if I want to answer the question of CAR T superiority over transplant, um, is a trial design would be that all of the patients would receive chemotherapy, right? Like a salvage chemotherapy, mm-hmm. and then. At the time of assessment, uh, you know, you know, if you are, when you have uh, evidence of response, so you're chemosensitive, that's the time where I would randomize into CAR-T versus transplant, because by default, you're not going to do an autologous transplant unless you have chemosensitive disease. Right. So if you really want to demonstrate superiority of CAR-T over transplant shouldn't you take only patients who are chemosensitive no i I, that that's a very good question and and i think that gets at some of the design issues on this right is that you know the way these trials were designed zuma 6 and transform may have stacked things a little bit towards the car t arm right because you know you're the patients who you know had an early progression or who had a suboptimal response to, to chemo were never really candidates to go to transplant or really candidates to be, um, you know, on the, to stay on the standard of care arm for the event-free survival. Um, And that's something I've seen some discussion on Twitter as well about, you know, what, what is the, what is, what is the right way to treat a patient or optimal way to treat a patient who is, has chemosensitive disease. Um, But I don't think either of these trials really necessarily address that. Um, I'd have to look, relook at the Belinda design um, in terms of, you know, can we understand how well either of these mechanisms work in, in patients who are in response as, as a, you know, consolidation or, or to really, um, you know, increase the response and, and get into a long-term CR. You mentioned something, Matt, earlier that transform is very similar to, um, Zuma, and I'm just getting Dr. Skarbnik, who is going to 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 okay. come in also to give us a lot of clinical perspective. So I'll I'll pause a little bit to say welcome to Dr. Skarbnik, who is a frequent guest on the show. Um, um, uh, Alan, thank you for, so much for jumping in. Uh, you're gonna do a quick intro. I'll I'll admit in all transparency, I had asked Dr. Mehdi Hamadani, who is a transplanter. To, uh, to, uh, to come in and um, I wanted to get also a transplant perspective because there was a lot of transplant versus CAR-T and he's a little bit under the weather. So I, I appreciate you uh, providing us the clinical perspective, but, uh, uh, and you know, Dr. Matt Maurer from Mayo Clinic, uh, maybe a quick intro about you, uh, uh, Alan, then I'll just tell you a little bit about what we've been talking about for the past uh, 20 minutes or so. Sounds good, thanks. Thank- you're, you're lucky it's raining today and I'm home. I love it. So, uh, <laughs> thank, thank you. Happy, happy to step in. I'm Alan Skarbnik. Uh, I'm a director of lymphoma and cell program of the Immune Effector Cell Program and of One Health in, in North Carolina. I am also a transplanter, so you know. We, oh, I didn't know that yeah. you're doing the transplant. Okay. I am a transplanter too. I do I do a lot of autos. I'm an associate director for the transplant program. I actually have a transplant fellowship as well. I did an extra year uh, after my hemoc fellowship. So actually my background is in transplant, but I'm, I'm happy to discuss and, and have as much as I can in a biased view of, of the issue. 
So hi, Matt. Nice to see you. Same here, Alan. Uh, yeah. Not 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 on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's great. Yeah. So, uh, um, so I wish I, it was live, but great. Before you came in, Matt and I had been really going, I would say, more philosophical discussion versus really pragmatic clinical application. We're doing a lot about the endpoints. We talked a lot about the differences in endpoints, trial design, how events were identified in event-free survival. We talked a little bit about, um, frankly, we talked a little bit about uh, the bridging chemotherapy and so forth. Mm -hmm. And what I asked Matt, an important question, is how much of the differences in transform Belinda and Zuma is A, related to true biological differences between the CAR-T products, mm -hmm. B, the definition of the endpoints, because obviously the output of the results will always, output of a trial will always depend on the definition, or C, the inclusion-exclusion criteria and trial design, for example, bridging chemo, not bridging chemo, crossover, not crossover. And, um, you know, we went back and forth on that, but I don't believe we concluded with certainty why the differences exist. Do you want to give us a bit of a clinical perspective? And then we circle back to Matt. Okay, just throwing me in the fire as, as, as soon as I, 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 I log in. That's okay. Uh, uh, it is, I want to dig deeper into the full publications of those studies, to be sincere. Since coming back from ASH, I had a super busy clinic that was concentrated because I paid for taking those days off to go to ASH. So I haven't had the opportunity to actually review the entire uh, the papers in its entirety. Perhaps if you have invited me in advance, I would have done that for you, we will. but that's okay. Yeah, we'll go to that. But, you know, on the surface from, from what was presented at least at ASH, there, there are some differences in the trial designs there, uh, particularly in the endpoints and the definition of what was an event that may have hindered uh, the results of Belinda in particular. On the other hand, I think Belinda uh, was a little bit closer to reality, to be sincere, because of this patients end up having bridging chemo. Uh, there are some manufacturing issues sometimes. It took a long time. It was a 50-day um, median time for cell receiving uh, on Belinda, which is actually quite, quite long. Uh, I mean, when we do when we do Yaskarda in, in in real life, it's it's less than twenty days uh, once once we collect the cells, right? But not from trial enrollment. But you can have delays from insurance perspectives and anything. So at any rate, I think Belinda translated a little bit closer to what we see from the time a patient is identified to the time a patient receives the cells, uh, rather than the other trials, which are not what we see in the real world. Uh, but philosophically, and, and looking at it uh, as a whole, uh, I mean, it, it does corroborate a little bit with what we were all doing for that population, right? We know the primary refractory disease in particular, uh, the outcomes with, with salvage human transplant are not great. I mean, most of those patients, uh, the disease is not chemosensitive. Uh, it already manifested itself in the front line. It's not chemosensitive. It's, you know, it's rare to be chemosensitive on the, on the second go round. And lots of times we give chemo just to prove it's not chemosensitive and then be on label with the CAR-T product. So, you know, give two cycles of chemo, still have significant disease and it's okay, we're gonna to go to CAR-T because I know transplant is not gonna really work that well in this population. So it kind of corroborates, I mean, less than practice changing, it just corroborates what we're doing. Perhaps we can skip that, the need for that uh, chemo non-sensitivity proving to get the cells approved if, if the label changes. Uh, I have to say though, I have to say, Al, one of the things that I was really curious about, um, and I, like I was thinking, if you really wanna prove, and I asked Matt this, and I don't think we got a question, but it's rather provocative thing. Um, if you really wanna prove that CAR-T is better than autologous transplant, shouldn't you take patients who have chemosensitive disease and the randomization is after. So you do the salvage chemo. Now you have chemosensitive disease. Now it's a fair game because now you're demonstrating whether CAR-T is superior to transplant patients who 
could respond to transplant because you have chemosensitive disease? Uh, I think more or less, I think a, a, a true, I, I think the better design will be salvage chemotherapy, CR patient, CR transplant, right? That's where you have the opportunity to do transplant, then partial response randomized. If a patient has a partial response, then randomized to uh, autologous cell transplant consolidation versus CAR-T in that setting. Because, you know, doing CAR-T for someone who achieves a, a complete response after second line chemotherapy, um, you know, I, 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 with the information we have right now, I mean, you need to have disease, particularly to have the expansion. They need to, it needs to bind to the, to the cell of choice, to the antigen of choice to trigger the stimulation and elicit CAR T cell expansion and then, you know, lead to it. So probably you're going to be having a very, very, very low disease burden. I mean, even if you have any disease it will be minimal. I mean, if it's bad, it's negative. So, uh, I, I think you, you need to have a separate trial before that to prove the efficacy in the phase two kind of single arm study uh, of CAR-T in that setting. But for the biggest issue is partial response, right? So there's data sets from a number of institutions. Uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering has a very good data set uh, from, uh, I think, Craig Sauter is the first author of patients who have DeVille score four uh, after salvage and go into transplant with, with pers persistent, you still have disease that you had a partial response. They still have very good outcomes. It's a little more than 50% uh, control of disease long-term. So that is the population that we question, particularly in the primary refractory setting. I think chemosens true chemosensitive disease where you can achieve a complete response I still think transplant is, is a good idea. Uh, the problem is that a small percentage of patients will present that degree of chemosensitivity in the primary refractory setting. Early relapse is a little different. You know, patient had a CR to frontline and then relapse occurred eight, 10, 11 months later, right? I think you still have a chance of achieving a complete response and especially depending on the burden of disease at that point. So on those patients, I think proving chemosensitivity should be important. And then, and then you know, doing transplant consolidation will still be adequate. Because also, you know, we need to look at it from a, from a philosophical perspective, which in the U.S., you probably can do that. The CAR-T is approved, particularly for, for patients with, with, with uh, commercial insurance coverage. Medicare make, makes it a little bit more complicated. Uh, but ex-U.S., it's going to be really hard to accomplish, particularly in, in lower middle income uh, countries where they don't even have CAR-T approved for third line. You know, Brazil, for instance, we don't have CAR-T approved there. Um, so a lot of times when we do studies, we kind of need to think a little more globally these days, not only what we're able to do here or, I don't know, perhaps <laughs> find ways to, to fix the cost and the price of these products. That's great. So Matt, back to you. I think we got a little bit of a clinical snip, you know, snippets into how Ali really would, would think about uh, something like this. Um, how, how would you, you, you heard from him? What are your thoughts yeah. going back to the endpoints? Yeah, I want to get Al's opinion on, on the overall survival on these studies. And, and when I look at Transform and, and Zuma, one of the things that strikes me is the question of, you know, you've attempted... Um, standard of care, so going the mm -hmm. transplant route, um, randomized versus going right to CAR-T. And um, knowing that the patients who have a suboptimal response to chemo will will go and get managed how they would off study. In, in this mm -hmm. case, a lot of patients going to CAR-T or crossing over to CAR-T um, off trial. I think those, I've, when I looked at this, I thought the overall survival curves will tell us a lot in a year or two in terms of mm -hmm. that 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 approach of is it is it worth taking a, um, a shot at get going to transplant with patients or should we are we missing anything by going right to CAR T? Um, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that because we are seeing a preliminary survival impact yeah. from on both studies, and so the fact that you're seeing consistency in both of these where the patients were events if they had suboptimal response to first salvage chemotherapy um, and, and then were, were able to go and get cross, crossed over or managed off protocol, I think is um, gonna be really telling. 
I, I agree with you. I think DOI, I mean, particularly Transform is 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 very telling because they had the crossover built into the study, which truly was the right thing to do. Uh, you know, uh, Zuma 7 did not. Those patients would go to commercial CAR-T and then you get into all the caveats of trying right. to get the product commercially. So, so you know, those data, I have to consider it a little bit more carefully. Mm -hmm. uh, but the curves on transforming particularly are, are starting to separate fairly early on. Um, and then you question what what is the, uh, is there a difference in efficacy by doing CAR-T second line versus doing CAR-T third line, where very likely we have more T-cell exhaustion at that time, and patient has been more exposed to chemotherapy. Um, we know particularly the CLL CAR-T studies that are using further lines of therapy wasn't as successful, and by bringing it earlier on, the results seem a little more encouraging. Um, uh, I, I do believe that using this product with less exposure to chemotherapy is of benefit. It's it's likely to be more active and uh, uh, improve on, on the CAR T cell expansion and activity. So um, I think the OS curves are going to really tell us that because the patients who are receiving CAR T either as commercial third line or crossover after failure of previous uh, treatment, um, they're not surviving as long receiving the same product, particularly in Transform where there was the crossover. So yes, there's going to be very telling. I think that when that point is reached, is going to, and it will be, I think, because the curves are already kind of showing the trend. Uh, I think it's going to corroborate more the usage of CAR-T in second line um, in patients with primary refractory or early relapse disease. Um, but, but again, and, and, then, and then, you know, I, I go back to the philosophical question, access to transplants already an issue, right? A lot of the patients who should historically, who should receive a transplant don't, uh, because of access to transplant centers, you know, you have to travel you have to be in the hospital, some places do outpatient. Um, so there's already a decreased percentage of patients receive that CAR T I think is going to be even lower. Uh, because there are less centers that do that do it, you know. There's only uh, for for access health, for instance, there's less than 100 authorized centers in the U.S. right now, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, this may be outdated, but last time I looked was around the number uh, and the cost, right? Uh, and also what the time to treatment is an issue. I mean, lots of the patients will end receive need to receive breathing bridging something, uh, chemo, steroids, novel agents to kind of get them to that point because this disease tends to be rapidly progressive. And sometimes it takes two months or more to get the cells uh, because of insurance barriers uh, and logistic barriers as well. So uh, I think adaptability of a treatment that very likely will be superior in that setting uh, is going to become an issue. And that's where I think a real world registries will, will come into play to really see what's the impact outside of the clinical trial setting. You know, um, how, how, how often do you guys do, don't do bridging chemotherapy? I try not to, if, if I can, particularly, well, it, it depends. I, I like not to give anything before lymphophoresis because uh, sometimes I fear that will affect uh, uh, the production of the cells and it may be just my own uh, bias towards it. I know like Benda, the patients I give in Benda before uh, lymphophoresis in the past, which I don't do anymore, uh, it didn't work. Uh, I think it really affects the cells and there's, there's some retrospective data uh, supporting that. So I tend not to give it. Um, if, if I need to... You know, I give a little bit platinum-based treatment uh, if they haven't received that before. Uh, gemcitabine, something that's be a little less deleterious in terms of activity of CAR-T. What I try to do is hold the bridging until the lymphophoresis happens. And then after that, it's fair game. Anything I can keep polar VR at that point, it doesn't matter because cells are collected already. Uh, so, you know, it all depends on what the patient probability of getting that in a timely manner is going to be. Okay. My experience in my center is once I collect the cells, I've been getting the cells in less than three weeks back. 
So uh, usually patients require just one cycle, something to hold it so they can be healthy enough to, to get the cells back. Alan, can I, can I follow up on that? So how yeah. does that impact the patients that went on these trials? Are there differences overall in the patients who went on these trials um, based on how these patients would need to be managed in the period to getting on the trial? Uh, probably. I think, you know, there are differences in, in, in uh, bridging chemo allowance or not. Um, you know, Zuma 7, they were concerned that if you give bridging chemo, it will affect, they wouldn't know if the response would be from the chemotherapy or from the CAR-T afterwards, which, you know, it's, it's, a, valid, it's a valid thought uh, if you have access to CAR-T quickly, right, uh, which is the case. Patient enrolled, you have a quick screening period to collect the cells, you get the cells in less than 21 days, which is not reality. That's not what we do because it takes longer than that. And I think Belinda reflects that a little bit more closely to, to what you see. And we did allow bridging chemotherapy and, and I believe transform and allow bridging chemotherapy as well, one cycle, right? Yeah, they bridging chemo. Yeah, so, but still, you know, with transform, we saw the efficacy endpoint is there, at least the way to define an efficacy endpoint. Um, so is it an issue with, with viability? I know, listen, you know, I, I, uh, Kaiser Cell had previous issues with cell viability production in the real world. Uh, you know, a lot of patients needed to get INDs because it didn't meet the threshold that was established by the FDA. Um, so manufacturing issues can, can be a problem. I don't know if that had any, and again, I didn't read the entire paper. I don't know what was the viability of the cells, if it was compliant. I would imagine it had to be with the threshold because of the clinical trial. I don't know. I mean, there are different products too, so we can only assume I mean, they, they need to have a head-to-head -head comparison between the three of them, which I don't think will happen. Uh, yeah, that's you know what what. We, but the kinetics of expansion between these products is a little different, um, and I don't know how much that affect efficacy, if at all. Uh, you know, but and again, doing cross-trial comparisons. With the previous phase two pivotal trials that led to the approval of this of these agents, and with all the caveats that doing cross trial comparisons come with, the efficacy uh, was a little different between the products, right? I mean, if you look at it at the duration of response, uh, Tesla cell seemed to be a little inferior to to Lizo and Axis cell, but uh, again, it's not head to head, so take it for what it is. So I know that uh, Matt has to sign off and I'll finish off with, uh, with Alan uh, just about the pragmatic and clinical application, uh, what he would do with his patient uh, coming in tomorrow. But um, Matt, any last thoughts in terms of um, honing in on just trial design and endpoints? Because I, these, are, these always confuse me. No, I, you know, and I think it's, it's trying to understand what the endpoint was and what that impact has on the curves that you see. Um, I think you're seeing some very different designs among the, especially Belinda, how that endpoint was designed is, is quite a bit different, the EFS than, than the other two trials. And so keeping that in mind when you're, when you're looking at these outcomes. And that's where, you know, we look, why we look at multiple events on trials is that they are, they are all telling us slightly different things and they all have, um, you know, convey different inf information. So um, looking at the whole story. Well, thank you so much, Matt. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Great talking to both of you. Thanks, thanks Matt. Nice talking to you. It was brief, but it's Chadi's fault. We invited yeah. him <laughs> it, it is my fault. <laughs> well, well, maybe at a future one, we'll, we'll continue yeah. this discussion. It's been fun because this is, you know, this is, these are big studies that were um, really impacting how we were going to think about managing patients with diffuse large B cell lymphoma, which is exciting. So it's fun to walk through what did we learn and, and how do we apply this to our patients? So, um, Al, I think, um, you know, we talked a lot about philosophical endpoints, trial design, all of that stuff. And, and I think you and I agree that there is no perfect trial. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, every trial has shortcomings, has some, some issues. But at the end of the day, you're going to see patients and you need to make decisions on these patients. And, uh, and you know, um, we did not talk about Polarix. I actually have a different podcast on it because Polarix is in the frontline setting. But certainly with the future, who knows how CAR-T will impact patients who received Polar mm -hmm. as opposed to Vincristine. But for today, I don't know. 
I walk into your room tomorrow, I unfortunately have relapse disease, DLBCL. What does Dr. Skarbnik do? Good question. Uh, I think it depends on a number of things. Um, first of all, we got to look at uh, what is uh, transplant eligible and CAR-T eligible at this point, right? And there is there are differences there. Um, you know, CAR-T has a very weak chemo preparation regimen with intent of lymph depleting. Uh, that besides cytopenias doesn't really have that many long-term side effects uh, when compared to autotransplant, which is a pretty hefty chemo backbone has a number of long-term, but risk of long-term complications uh, compared to, to CAR-T. And, and, and I'll tell you this, from my experience nowadays, uh, patients who receive CAR-T have, in my opinion, an easier time uh, than patients who receive transplant um, in terms of, of complications. I mean, yes, you can have the CRS, yes, you can have neurotoxicity. They are largely reversible if you're doing it properly. This is treatable in, in patients. I mean, I, I'm doing outpatient for T uh, uh, in my in my uh, facility, and it's been pretty successful. Uh, we are doing now steroid prophylaxis based on core six of, of Zuma one. If we're using XSL to try and decrease uh, the the incidence, but but also the grade of the complications. Patients do great, you know. With transplant, you're always surprised by one thing or another. Uh, you know, I see monotropic fever. Um, you know, we have longer, it takes longer time for patients to recover. Um, they need to be more fit to undergo transplant, which CAR-T now then allows a very efficacious treatment option for patients who are older and less fit, who otherwise, potentially wouldn't be a candidate for, for an autologous stem cell transplantation because of organ dysfunction, performance status, you name it. Um, so you have to look into that as well. Uh, the second thing is, you know, what's the, uh, what, what's the kinetics of the disease here? If someone had diffuse large cell lymphoma, had a CR and relapsed, I don't know, a year and a half later, I'd be, and they're candidates for transplant, I'd be very comfortable in doing salvage chemotherapy with a platinum-based regimen and then consolidating with transplant if chemo sends the disease. Uh, you know, there are PRs and PRs. You know, if you have a Deville 4, but still have a lot of disease, uh, I'd be less comfortable. Probably I'll go to a, a third-line CAR-T at that point. If you have a Deville 4, but it's just a little bit of disease left, then transplant still may work uh, uh, very well. So that's, you know, the later relapse uh, situation, I think that's that's less clear if one is better than the other. Then you have the early relapse, right? Patients had a response and then disease uh, relapsed within or progressed within 12 months. Some patients still may have an opportunity for, for, for chemosensitivity. Um, I guess I would have to see, again, what is the burden of disease at that point, how the patient is doing, uh, do you have easy access to CAR-T? I mean, and this is considering the labels approved for, for second line. Yes, if we take all patients together, the trial showed with the definitions of endpoints and EFS that the trial had that, yes, EFS is better. We don't know yet, yet overall survival. I mean, you need a little longer for that, have the differences that we briefly discussed between the three trials. So, you know, if I'm going to choose a product at that point, which is a product that showed superior efficacy by the end point of the study, if I'm going to go to CAR-T, uh, but I think we need to be very cautious, very, very, uh, we, we need to evaluate very closely um, who of these patients will be ones that may still benefit from salvage chemotherapy and transplant or not, and we don't have enough data for that, but you know, you, clinical judgment may come into play a little bit into it. I mean, we have a very long story, decades of data with autologous and self-transplantation, not that much with CAR-T yet, so we really need to gauge with that. Now, what I'm gonna say is for primary refractory disease, I have no question, I would do CAR-T second line 
if it's available, period. I will not, I mean, that, that to me is the niche where this is clearly superior because the disease already shown its face that is not really sensitive to chemotherapy. I'm talking about patients who got R-CHOP or whatever, they got EPOC, mostly R-CHOP, of course, in front line, and the disease did not respond or progress through R-CHOP. Um, I think that's clear. This patient should, should receive CAR-T from, from, from the studies. I, I really don't have a question about that. If I, I had, if, if I think the question, I, yeah, the question is going to be these ones that, yeah, you know, relapse fourteen months out, right? I exactly. Mean, yeah, these are the tough ones, and I don't know. I'm gonna, uh, to your point, I think you make a very, very good point that these are scenarios where I, I do believe real world data and accumulation of real world evidence is going to help guide what we're going to do because there, we'll never compare the three products to each other prospectively. So we'll have to see how they're going to be used. Yeah, and, and you know, it's it's it, there's still question marks there. Uh, it was very interesting that the three studies were presented at the same ash, and you're yeah. looking at the differences in study design. And um, you know, it's it, it raises a lot of questions, really, like why 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 that difference? Yeah. And we can only speculate because they're different populations. The timing was was different. Uh, between the studies. So, so it does raise a number of questions here. And also it boils down a lot to cost. I mean, even with the salvage chemo and the transplant, that's cheaper than CAR-T, uh, right? And um, if, if the entire transplant population of the LBCI will transition to CAR-T, that's going to be a big problem economically, right? I don't, I, I don't see how that's going to be supported um, unless they change the price, which... Yeah, you know, go, go argue to do that. I was gonna happen. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but but yeah, I agree with you. I think more real world data is perspective. And now, Richard, do a perspective registry, right? The patient is going into the study, do a registry and and look yeah. at that, and and you know, gather those data and see and try to tease out who does better, who doesn't do as as well. Uh, who is a good candidate for it or not. And, you know, do the same institution registries for transplant, um, ECIBMTRs. Uh, we are taping this literally a week after the American Society of Hematology meeting. Will be interesting to see over the next year or so what's going to happen. But um, mm -hmm. very grateful that uh, that you came on, you clarified some of the issues. I, You know, I think we have more questions than answers in the non-refractory setting. Yes. I agree yes. with you. In the refractory setting, it seems to be a slam dunk. In the non-refractory mm -hmm. setting, there will be a lot of questions, and we'll have to see. Mm -hmm. You know, and as I said, I, 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 I don't know if you guys commented on it before. I, I'd like to see on the studies, and I don't know if that's in, in the full paper or not, because as I said, I didn't have the opportunity to, to go over it in detail yet. But I'd like to see, and I know that's not intended to treat population, but I'd like to see for the patients who actually got transplant, what the outcomes were. In, in Zuma 7 and transform. I mean, how did those curves look? Uh, uh, and, 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 and even try to compare that to the, to the axis cell curves. I mean, probably those patients had a little better biology because the disease was chemosensitive enough to allow transplant to happen. But um, I, think that, I think that's the question mark. And, and, uh, and, and out of curiosity, no, I, know, I know that's not the right way to, to look into studies because it was not the ITT population. But uh, but I, I really like to see that at least for guidance for the way I, I, I do things. But well, I hope I hope that's shown somehow. Dr. Alan Skarbnik goes by Scarbs, future uh, restant. What do you say, restantantor? Whatever that's like. I, I hope we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what destiny brings us. Dude, I'm banking on you. Let me tell. You, do not disappoint <laughs> me. I mean, I've already have a plan. I'm gonna be. We just have to decide. Look, we're gonna have a franchise of this, like you know, we just franchise everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. The yeah. scarves. We call it the scarves. And I'm gonna call it the Juzillion. But uh, oh, you already have that. I like that. You I have the name. I've been writing menu for for a while now. Now, so you know. I love it. All right. Happy New Year. Okay, thanks, Daddy. Happy New Year to you too.
Okay, folks, uh, I want to thank you for, training, for tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered. I appreciate your support. I hope that you can um, uh, subscribe to the show, write a brief review, refer a friend or a colleague, and uh, let me know what you think about the topics and how I'm doing. Make sure you reach out to me to get a free T-shirt, Healthcare Unfiltered T-shirt, courtesy of me because you are a loyal listener to this podcast. And uh, uh, make sure you uh, subscribe to the show. Uh, refer a friend or a colleague. Don't forget to visit the website and write a brief review. Also, check out the YouTube channel. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying from Isaac Newton. To every action, there is always opposed and equal reaction. Until next time.